Song of Solomon. We'll be continuing our series from that book. We're in chapter 6 now. This is very much a continuation of the story that began in 5-2, chapter 5, verse 2, where the bride resisted her husband's advances only to regret it afterward. In going through the Song of Solomon, we have seen that it is meant to be understood as an allegory of the church's relationship with Jesus Christ. In this song, he is the bridegroom, the husband, and the church is his bride, his wife. Although many modern commentators are squeamish about this interpretation, nevertheless, for the better part of three millennia, the allegorical interpretation has been the dominant one. Granted, for us moderns, It takes some getting used to for our relationship with Christ to be illustrated not only by marriage, but even by the very marriage act itself. This is a thing that stretches us and is difficult sometimes, but we need to accept this. As we saw recently, even the Apostle Paul declared this in a very direct way, In Ephesians, when writing to the Ephesians, he speaks of the one flesh aspect of marriage, the marriage act, if you will, as revealing in a mystery the relationship of Christ and the church. In particular, he talks about that aspect of marriage in Ephesians 5, 30 through 32. So if this is something God has given us to illustrate that to us, then we need to receive it. We need to get used to the idea, get over our squeamishness, and understand how to interpret these things. So in the allegory revealed in chapter 5, we have the bride of Christ resisting his advances to be intimate with her. She is spiritually sluggish, and she does not want to take the pains of, of opening the door, having to get her robe on and having to you know, realize she's clothed with righteousness to come before him and having to uh, wash her feet, having to cleanse herself, all of these things. Even though he appeals sweetly to her, she does not want to get up. Then he reaches his hand beside her door and his transforming touch arouses her so that she stirs herself She has myrrh dripping from her hands as she comes with with passion and desire to be with him and to open the door to him. But when she does open the door to her great dismay, he is gone. She does not go back to bed, though. She instead goes out in the night to look for him. She has been aroused. She wants to find him. His touch has stirred her. She goes to the watchmen of the city, you'll recall, the ministers of the church, only to be roughly treated by them. Undaunted, she goes to her brothers and sisters, who are called the daughters of Jerusalem, the members of the church. She goes to them and asks them to tell her that if if they see him, the one that she loves, please tell him how eager I am to be with him. Please tell him that I am lovesick, she says. If you should find him, then tell him that I want to be with him. They're quite impressed with how eager she is to find him, that she's unstoppable. She just keeps on. I mean, why didn't she just go back to bed when he was gone? You know, that's what, thought, that's what I would have done. <laughs> you know, so what's, what's going on with this? They want to know why. How is her beloved better than another beloved? They asked her that question, didn't they? We looked at that. We spent a whole uh, Sunday on that. Excellent question. And then last week, we spent our time in a larger passage where she gives them the answer. Uh, verse 9 through 16. I really love that passage. Her beautiful response that she gives to the daughters of Jerusalem. In short, she told them that he was chief among 10,000 and that he was altogether lovely. She began by saying he was chief among 10,000. She concluded by saying that he was altogether lovely. She went also, though, into particulars in the middle of that, about 10 of them, showing how he is superior to all others. Not just that he has the attributes that others have, but that he has them in an entirely fundamentally different way than anyone else. She presented him as a 
like a monument that she described that was a, a monument of a deity. And even those who are secularists who interpret this as just a, a love song, like the most secular people, they say that he's presented here in a, a divine manner as divinity. And we know that he is divine, that he truly is the head of gold. He is indeed both God and man. So she presented him that way to show that he was beyond comparison to any other. He alone is God and man. He alone is able to have true compassion for us. He alone is able to truly do those works that are necessary to to save his people from their sin, to take his bride out of the mire. She ended this powerful discourse with the words of chapter 5, verse 16, where she begins by declaring that his mouth is most sweet. We talked about how that was a little unusual. Like why, she already talked about his mouth earlier, the, the lily being like his lips like lilies and, and so on. So, so what is she thinking of here? Well, she'd gone from head to foot, hadn't she? And now, now she goes back to the mouth again. Why? We said it was because she was thinking about what she was missing, his kisses. Remember how she started this whole song back in chapter 1, verse 2? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then uh, she said, for your love, she turned to him, your love is better than wine, she said. And she had been deprived of those because she had brushed him aside and, and resisted him. And now she's, she's out looking for him. She wants to have these, your, your mouth, she says, is, is, uh, is, is something that she is des- greatly desiring. Then, then in verse 16, she says, or in the rest of 16, she says, yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So going back to the kisses of his mouth that, that she wants, um, those kisses, of course, are, are the manifestation of his love. That's what a kiss is, a manifestation of a husband's love to his wife. Jesus manifests his love to us in his, the things that he says to us, the way he reveals himself, the spiritual way, right? So yes, he is altogether lovely. She says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Indeed, she has made her case and she's made it well that he's like no other. In the verses that we're looking at today, starting in verse one of chapter six, we see that the daughters of Jerusalem are ready to join the bride and uh, in her eager search for Jesus, they ask for direction, and she gives it to them, as we will see also. And we will, we, we will begin in Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 3, so just a short passage. Pay careful attention, as this is the word of God that I will be expounding to you today. Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 1. Where is your beloved gone? Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? She says, My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And there we end the reading of God's word. Now, let's look again here. See in verse 1 how the daughters of Jerusalem ask the bride where her beloved may be found. They say, 6-1, I'll read it to you again. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? The bride's description of his loveliness has made them want to seek him too. It has captivated them, as it were. Her praise of him made them realize that they don't know him the way she does. But now, having heard about him, they want to know him the way she knows him. Hearing about her relationship with him made them hunger and thirst for a similar relationship, with a relationship with him. It makes them realize that that they had been missing out. She had something that they didn't know of. 
in the way that she knew of it. You can tell that they are very eager about this. They show this by repeating themselves. They did that before with the other question, didn't they? They repeat this question as well. They say, where has your beloved gone? They're invested now in this whole thing. They, they say, where has your beloved turned aside? They, they re- say it in two different ways. They're like, where did he go? What, what, what's become of him? They, they have taken up her distress as their own distress about being absent from him. And look, they're ready to drop everything and go searching for him too. They say so. Where has your beloved gone that we may seek him with you? They're, they're not just curious about, oh, I wonder where he went. You know, they're, they're like, where is he? We want to go with you. We want to seek him. We want to find him too. They're ready for action. They're ready to go looking for him with their new friend. They want to enjoy intimacy with him along with her. This works beautifully in the allegory. It wouldn't work too well if this was a, about a, an ordinary relationship. But here the bride, you see, there's one bride. And as we said, she edifies herself in love. She, she encourages the other members, let's go seek Christ. The bride is always going to seek Christ. And there's some members you see that are leading the way among the body of Christ. There's others that are dragging along or they've been distracted. They've been pulled aside. And together we go to Christ. We go to Christ. And she's stirred. They're, they're stirred up now. They're ready to go. They're ready to go with her. That's the way it works in the church. It's a beautiful picture here. We have to do that with ourselves too. Maybe, maybe part of us wants to do what we need to do and the other part doesn't. And our own members, we have to stir ourselves up you know, to do what, what is pleasing. And, and don't miss the fact that they call her here the fairest among women again. That's significant, isn't it? They are right. What is so beautiful about her? Do you remember what makes her the fairest among women? Her devotion to him. That's what makes her lovely and beautiful. That she desires him and that she loves him. And they see that. That's what makes the church different than everyone else in the whole world. These are the people who know Jesus Christ and who love him and delight in him. And that makes them beautiful. That's the change that has been brought in them that others don't have. And a bride who who cherishes and loves her husband is beautiful in that love and that, that adoration for him. These daughters, you see, they say, you're the fairest among women. We want to be like you. We admire what we see in you, the devotion that you have for him. We want to have that too because it's a beautiful thing. As, as I think about what Paul said to children, you know, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. This is just right. It's right to love him and to be devoted to him. It's rather ironic that they ask her where to find him when her very purpose in coming to them in the first place was because she could not find him and she was asking them to help. But this is really, if you think about it, that's kind of, kind of strange. Why would they ask her when she didn't know where he was? Well, it's really quite natural, in fact. If you have a friend that, that lost a pet, you know, maybe they, they lost their cat or something like that. And what's the first question you ask? Well, where did you last see the cat? Where does the cat go when it leaves? Where have you seen it before? Where, where, have you, where can you find it? We, you know, if, they're, if they're interested in helping you, they'll start to ask those questions. But this is especially the case here with the daughters of Jerusalem because they had not really experienced this, this intimacy with him that, that she had described to them. They had not seen his beauty and his glory that she has described. They don't know where the trysting place is because they've never been there. But, or at least they've been there, but they haven't experienced the, 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 what she's experienced. They, they, they know that she has. So they ask her, where can we go to find him? Where can he be found? So the daughters of Jerusalem have been moved with earnest desire to find him, that they might have communion with him too. Now perhaps after going through chapter 5, as we have done as a church over the last little while, we've been going through this, you also want to go with the bride, with the church, to enjoy intimacy with Christ in the trysting place. Perhaps like the daughters of Jerusalem, you have come to see that you have not known Christ 
the way that the bride knows him and describes him, that you have not known him either. Perhaps you are one of those daughters of Jerusalem, a member of the church. You are a member, the daughters of Jerusalem are the members of the church. And exactly like them, you have heard the bride speaking of her beloved, even in this passages that we've looked at. You've, you've heard it. You've heard the word of God. And, uh, and it stirred you up. You said, I, I need to seek him too. I need to look for him. You, you have heard her and you've said, I don't know him like she does either. I want to know where to find him so I can see his beauty and experience his love. Where can I find him? Now, I'm not saying that it necessarily means that you're not a believer. I'm not really commenting on that. I don't know about that. What is important is that the Lord is calling you to come to him and walk with him as your husband who gave himself for you, not only that you might be forgiven, but also that you might have communion with him, that you might delight in him, that you might have communion in his father's house with him. He calls us to come and to cherish him as our husband and to be with him and to receive blessing from him. I hope that all of you have been stirred up by what we have seen in chapter 5, to, that you yearn for intimacy with Christ. Now, perhaps some of you can identify more with the bride than you can with the daughters of Jerusalem here. They're all part of the one bride, right? But as we're just making that distinction, the fairest among women, perhaps you can identify more with her than with the daughters of Jerusalem, but still the results are the same, that you want intimacy with him too. You see, over the years, maybe you have experienced intimacy with Christ. You have had a times when you greatly cherished him but this passage has made you realize that your love has turned cold that you have become lukewarm like the bride did like the church at Ephesus that Jesus rebuked for losing their first love he said you need to go back to love like you had at the beginning for me now you realize that you need to you need to arise and open to him you need to come to him with earnest desire. Like the, you, you need to lead the daughters of Jerusalem to him too. You've, you've experienced this before. And you, lost, and you need to be one who is now leading others like the bride is in our passage. So maybe you identify more with her because you, you, this is something you've known. Or maybe you're someone who has been enjoying communion with him the whole time. Maybe this is something that when you heard it, you were like, yes, and you saw the bride and you said, oh, why is she pushing him away? You know, that's, why is she doing that? And you, you, because you know what it is. You have, you're experiencing communion with him and you want to continue in it. And you're very thankful to God that, that he has enabled you to have that kind of delight in him and that communion with Christ. You're one who delights in regular communion and you lament when you see those who are not, like, why are they going away from Christ? Why are they not following him? You, you don't need to feel like you're being proud if that's the case. What are you proud about? You're thankful. It's God's grace that, that you, you desire him and you want him. It's not because you're, you're better than other people or something. It's, it's, it's because of who he is that you want to be with him, and God has opened your eyes to see that. Like Paul, you can honestly say, I'm constrained by the love of Christ. I can't do anything other than pursue him and go to him. His love constrains me. I, I, I don't have a choice here. I go to enjoy rich communion with him on a regular basis. I'm very pleased if God has used this sermon series to stir you up to pursue intimacy with Christ, to love him and to know his love. Whether you're someone who's already enjoying that and it's encouraged you, or whether you're someone who's realized you slipped away and you need to renew that, or someone who's really never known that. And whether it's because you're not saved or whether you're saved and you've just never really pursued the Lord and grown in him as you, as you might have, it's time, to, it's time to come and seek him. If you follow through with that desire 
that we see has been ignited in the daughters of Jerusalem, if it's ignited in you as a daughter of Jerusalem, and you follow through with seeking him, you won't be disappointed. It will be a wonderful thing. It will be good for you. The world, your own flesh, and the devil will try their best to discourage you from seeking him. To say that Christ can't really be known in an intimate way like that bride is talking. It's just a bunch of emotionalism. It's not something that's really a, a real thing that Christians can have. Or that, you know, well, yeah, there's the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and King David and Barnabas and Ruth and the widow Dorcas and people like that, they were just, they're all super Christians. They're not like me. They're, they're different. They're, they're, they're made of different stuff. They're, they're, they're just different people. And I can't, it's not for ordinary Christians. This is just something for super Christians that is, is being spoken about here. Well, the daughters of Jerusalem didn't think so, did they? We want to go with them. We want to seek him with you. The world, the flesh, and the devil will also try to divert you away from Christ. Maybe they've Maybe they've done that in the past. Maybe you've been stirred up to seek him and what happened to it? You pulled away. They'll try to fill you with distractions. Distractions with love for other things that grab your heart and your time from Christ. Making you think that, oh, I don't don't have time. What? You don't have time for the thing that you were made to do for the most important thing? The most important thing of all? Coming to Christ, praising him, knowing him, serving him, worshiping God? Or to discourage you that you have too much sin and guilt and make you forget that, well, how do you get cleansed from that? The Son of God, he's the son, he knows how to cleanse people from sin. His atonement is sufficient. It's not about you. It's about what he does to clean. You can't be too sinful. He can cleanse you from your, you come to him for that purpose. That's the reason you come. Don't say, I can't come to him because there's too much sin. In my, no, you come to him. He's the one that cleanses from sin. Or they will make you think, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will make you think that it is just too much trouble to earnestly seek Christ like that. Like the bride was when she was languishing on her bed. You know, oh, I've already, I've already, I don't want to have to put a robe on. I don't want to have to wash my feet. I don't want to do that. And, and you forget that it's by his grace that we're enabled to pursue him and that it's worth it. It's more than worth it. Or they will fill you with envy and resentment. So that instead of seeing the fairest of mo- among women, you'll say, oh, you know, who is she? It's just a hypocrite. Just a hypocrite. And you're bitter like the Pharisees were. They saw those who were devoted to Christ and who were having communion with him. And, and the more they saw, the more bitter they got. Because, well, I don't have that. And there's some, they're, they're, they're not real. They're, you know, they're, they, were, they, they, they resented it. Or maybe they will draw you away with very, I talked about like distractions of other things, but what about with sinful things? Get you all caught up with your, your lusts, you know, like, like sexual immorality or, or with, um, with drunkenness or drugs, just carry you away so that all you think about is wanting to drink or wanting to get the drugs or, or whatever, or, or entertainment, you know, you're just constantly, you're starting to starting to maybe take some time to actually think about God, actually read the word. And then, oh, wow, there's that video game. I'm going to go and do it. And you don't, even buy, you don't even go there. You know, this is, this is the reality of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Or they'll try to consume you with something like anxiety. You get all fretful about what's going to happen, and you're all focused on that. Well, why don't you come to the one who has the whole world in his hands and who promises to redeem us and to take care of us and to, to save us from our sins. Or maybe it's fear or depression or whatever it is. But no, my friend, if you have been stirred up to seek Christ, do not let anything stop you from pursuing him. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What could possibly be more important than Christ? What could possibly make you happier than true communion with him? Some of you may not have even seen 
this at all yet. You, you're just seeing it's like, what is this talking about? I don't even know what this is talking about. You need to find out. You need to find out. You are suppressing the truth when you do that. It's not that you're incapable of knowing. You know, the truth is all around us. It cries out to us all the time. And the only reason that we don't embrace it is because we're hard-hearted and we suppress the truth. It is hard work to suppress the truth. You have to fight all the time to keep the truth away because it's all around you. It's everywhere. And you're just being stubborn and hard-hearted if you do not come to the truth when it is brought before you. I say that with all confidence The scriptures say they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So I hope that all of you earnestly desire to seek regular intimacy with Christ. In verse 2, we have the church's answer about the place that Christ is to be found. The place, the trysting place where for, for him and his bride, where she meets with him. You know what? trysting place that's a place where lovers go to express their love to each other this is what the daughters of jerusalem want as members of the bride they want to go and see who he is to love him to pray and and for him to receive his love to be able to delight in him at the trysting place i just mentioned to you we looked this up a little bit that uh, the american pronunciation is um is trysting but the, um, the British is, is trysting. So since we're in Canada, I, thought trist, I think trysting sounds nicer. So it's, a, it's a place where lovers go. That's what we're talking about. They want to know, where is this? It's, a, it's grand to see that the bride has become their guide. She is the one who had shunned him before and was herself trying to find him, as I mentioned. But now she is leading the daughters of Jerusalem to him. This is the way it is with the church, isn't it? Those who minister to others, they don't have the sufficiency in themselves to minister to others, but they are made sufficient ministers by the working of God's Spirit in them, ministers of grace. Elders and pastors can often feel discouraged because they've been placed in office, yes, because they meet the qualifications that are given for office in Scripture, but they know how inadequate they are. And sometimes they have to tell others how to find Christ when they themselves are feeling estranged from him. And when they, in fact, are estranged from him like like she was. Paul tells us that God uses ministers not even though they are mere clay or earthen vessels, as he calls them, but he uses them because they are earthen vessels, in order that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. If God is going to use a clay vessel to lead others into communion with Christ, then obviously God's the one that did the work there. It wasn't the clay vessel that did the work, and God wants to make sure that everybody knows that. So he says, okay, I'm going to use these these clay vessels, people that are made of the dirt, to minister to another. I'm not going to use angels. I'm going to use the church to minister to the church. I'm going to use clay vessels to minister to clay vessels. God wants us to know that the ministry that the bride has by which she edifies herself in love is a ministry that comes by the gracious working of the Spirit in the church. And that's why we need to pray for God to work in the church. He wants us to know that it is an expression of His love and power. That's why we also need to give thanks when God is working through His people. But look at the bride. She knows how to answer the daughters of Jerusalem. She is the one who is, who is estranged from Him. She is able to direct them to the trysting place even though she herself did not presently find Him. She is able to help others even though she needs help. And in fact, helping others is the way that she gains that help. Isn't that the way it so often is? Is it not? Isn't it true? I mean, when you help others, even though you're struggling, you end up being helped more than even they are sometimes. Because, you know, you're struggling and now you're out of your struggle. All you did was help someone else. No one helped you. Well, somebody did, didn't they? But uh, it's a beautiful thing. I heard a beautiful story from a friend of mine, Robert McCurley, who's a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And uh, this is about some Free Church ministers, that uh, a couple of famous ministers from the Free Church of Scotland in the 19th century. 
And it illustrates this very, very well about how God uses this. It's, uh, one was a professor, a professor of Hebrew, a very godly man who was often called, affectionately called Rabbi Duncan because he taught Hebrew, right? So uh, he taught in their, in their divinity school. And the other was the pastor of the church that Duncan attended, that Rabbi Duncan attended. And he was called, uh, his name was Pastor um, Alexander Stewart. Well, Rabbi Duncan was one who deeply loved Christ, but who also often struggled with assurance. Sometimes people who do love Christ deeply will have days when they feel far away from him and they struggle with that. So one Saturday morning when Pastor Stewart was busy preparing for the Lord's Day services, he, he looked out his window from his study and he saw Rabbi Duncan coming up to his door and he thought he could tell that he was, he thought, oh no, my morning's gone. You know, I'm not going to be able to prepare for the things I need to prepare for the, the Lord's Day and he, I'm going to be listening to his struggles all morning. But before Duncan came to the door, Stuart, light bulb came on, and he opened the door, and he called out to him, telling him of a man that he had spoken to earlier on a carriage that he had been on. Perhaps, I don't know this, this, but perhaps when he was coming over to his study, that maybe he came in a carriage, I don't know, but a man that he'd seen earlier that morning, who he had talked to a little bit, who struggled to know how could Christ save a sinner? How could Christ save him? He, he didn't see how that could be, how that could be possible. So he told Rabbi Duncan about that. And Duncan said, where did he go? And he said, he went that way into town. So Duncan took off and went after him. Oh, I've got to go find that guy. I've got to straighten him out. I've got to go talk to him. So he went to talk to him. What was the outcome of that? <laughs> Stuart was very pleased because he said, I got my morning back. The sinner got to hear the gospel, and Rabbi Duncan got his assurance back. <laughs> and that's the way it works, isn't it? No one ministered to Rabbi Duncan to give him assurance. He went to minister to someone else, just like the bride does. Her focus shifts from her need to ministering to these others, and then she, she is the one who ends up receiving great blessing, as we shall see later. So, so where does the bride, though, first we need to see, where does the bride tell the daughters of Jerusalem to go? Okay, she's their guide now. They're looking at her. Where do we go? Where do we find them? What does she say? Well, look at verse 2. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the garden, to gather lilies. Now, how did she know that? Well, he told her that, didn't he? Back up a bit. If you've got your Bibles, you can look back. Uh, back up a little bit at the beginning of chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 1, he said, He said, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And then he said to his friends, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So he, he was in his garden. Now, what do we know about this garden? We'll back up a little bit more into chapter 4. Remember, at the end of chapter 4, that's where this all hinges on. Just before this, at the end of chapter 4, he had praised his bride for her beauty. What terms did he use to describe her? A garden with spices and with, with a fountain of refreshing water. An enclosed garden, in fact, which is the same word that's used here, a word that means a, an enclosed garden. So she is the garden. She is his garden. The bride of Christ is the garden. He speaks much at, at the, toward, toward the end of chapter 4 about all the wonderful fruits that she brings forth. Precious spices that give him great pleasure, Chief among these fruits, of course, was what we, we saw in that passage. you remember? What was the thing that, that re, he delighted in above all? It was her love for him, her devotion to him, which he knew was the fruit of his saving grace. Remember in 4.9 how he said that you have ravished my heart with one look of your eye. Just one look of devotion and love. He knew that that came from, from his saving work wrought upon her because no one loves him apart from that and in verse 10 he explained 
Rather saying that, how fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. Remember that? From this we can see then that his garden sanctuary is his bride. The church gathered the assembly of God's people. The garden where he has gone that the bride speaks of in verse 2 is the visible church. The beds of spices. This is chapter 6, verse 2, now that we're talking about it, our, our, our passage. And the beds of spices, they're there in verse 2 as well in the garden, are the individual congregations that make up his church. So there's one visible church, Catholic church, over the whole world, and then is composed of, of member churches, congregations, and each of those congregations has, is made up of members as well. Last week, we read from Revelation chapter 1. You remember, he was with his church among the lampstands and the vision that John had. He was walking around, tending to the lampstands, the churches, the seven churches that were representative of all the churches, you see. And uh, furthermore, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the Lord often meets with his people where? In the garden, beginning with the Garden of Eden and ending in Revelation 21 with a new garden that is established where there's a river that makes glad the people of God and where there's the trees that bear fruit that bring healing to the nations. This garden theme is all through the Song of Solomon, but we also see it in the temple with its furnishings and some of its ceremonies with decoration, decorations and things and the pomegranates and the, the lilies that things are fashioned after and olive trees and various things. In the New Testament, the assembly of God's people is the temple. That is the garden sanctuary where God's people gather and meet with Him, where the Lord visits His garden to see the fruit to nurture them, to to delight in them, and to bring blessing to them. So the bride teaches the daughters of Jerusalem to seek him in the garden sanctuary of his people among the gathering of the saints. The church assembled together for worship is his trysting place. Now, what what does the beloved do at his garden, the trysting place, is described in verse 2. Okay, what happens at the trysting place? Well, he's gone to his garden, it says, to feed. Look at 6-2. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. Now, I left out the word, his flock. The word feed is used both of feeding others and of feeding oneself in the Song of Solomon. Notice carefully in verse 2, the words, his flock, are in italics. What does that mean when words are in italics in our English Bible? It means that they were added by the translators. Those words aren't in the original. Now, they're added there with, with, not with no reason. The word feed is a word that shares the same root as the word to shepherd or to eat. You know, that sort of thing. And of course, the chief work of a shepherd is to feed the flock, isn't it? And as I say, the Song of Solomon uses the word feed, the Hebrew word is ra'ah, both to refer to feeding others and to feeding oneself or eating, as we would say. For example, in chapter 1, verse 8, the bride is told to feed her little goats. Obviously, she's feeding others there. But in 4.5, her breasts are described as resembling two fawns that feed among the lilies. So this time, they're feeding, feeding they're eating. And in 1.8, she, go, so she goes to feed others, giving them something to eat. In 4.5, she is the one who is eating, feeding to satisfy her own hungry, hunger. We have examples in the Song of Solomon of the bridegroom feeding himself and feeding others. In 5.1, we saw him going to his garden to eat the fruit that his bride produces. The spices, the honey, the wine, and the milk. 
He goes to the garden to enjoy the delicious fruit that the garden that, that his, is in his garden. He goes to enjoy the fruit that his bride has brought forth. Do you see that? The stuff that she has produced by his tender care. So as the gardener, he indeed goes to feed his garden, right? To tend it. He comes to the garden to give the garden, to feed the garden what it needs. And he also goes to partake of the fruits that come forth from his garden, to eat the fruit. Every gardener does this. He feeds his garden in that he plants his seeds, fertilizes, waters, weeds, heals what is sick, supports what is weak, and exterminates pests and drives away wild animals. But he also feeds from his garden in that he gathers the fruits, takes in the beauty of the flowers and their fragrance, gathers them, as it says here, he gathers the lilies, the blossoms that have come forth in his bride. It seems that no matter how you look at it, he goes to his bride both to feed her and to feed upon her precious fruits that give him so much delight and joy. They are the work of his hands. The bride is the work of his hands. His garden sanctuary, his bride assembled, is his trysting place with her. My brothers and sisters, you need to see how important the Christian worship service is. God has appointed the holy convocation the gathering of his people, the assembly of the church, and we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. To put it in the language of marriage, you are to come to make love to him, and he comes here to the assembly to make love to you in the garden, in the ecclesia. You need to think about this in your worship. Do you think about this in your worship? This is so important for our congregation. We need to hear this. As his bride, you make love to him by adoring him and giving yourself up to him in the assembly. You come with an offering, the offering of yourself. You are the garden. With the fruit of your lips, you are to give thanks to his name, to sing praise to him and respond with delight when he reveals himself to you in word and sacraments. In the assembly, more than anywhere else, you praise him. You behold his excellent, beautiful person as he is revealed in the assembly. His sweet promises as they are revealed through his word. His grace, his commandments, his his, uh, holy commandments, and his work, the work that he has done. All of these things are brought to your attention when you come to church. You are to love him here. You are to cherish him here. This is the trysting place where you respond to him and give yourself up to him. Your love is very precious to him and you come before him to give yourself up to him, over to him afresh. And always you come delighting in what he has done on the cross to save and secure your pardon from sins. You come as a happy bride who is very thankful to have a husband who cares so much for you, who is so mighty and powerful and has done so much for you and who has made promises to you and has plans for the house that he has prepared for you. You come to cherish and delight in him and to praise. Do you do that when you come to church? Is that what you're doing? As the bridegroom, what does he do? He makes love to you in the assembly by adoring you and pouring himself out for you. He takes pleasure, as we've seen, in your love and your devotion and the fruit that he has produced by his saving work in you. Every gardener loves to see fruit in his garden. He loves to see things growing, things that he can eat, flowers that he can pick. Think of what is in this garden. What is here? People who are lost and ruined who are destined for misery and hell, completely so when it comes to any fitness whatsoever in them that, uh, that they could appear before God. They were undone. And he, by his intense labor and by his sacrifice on the cross, 
has secured their pardon. And further, by the powerful working of His Spirit, He has made us new creations in Christ. Creations, new creations that are now blossoming with new life. That are bringing forth the fruits that He delights in so much. With love being the chief among all of those fruits. Love for Him being the chief, to love Him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. He comes and He sees the new lily blossoms that are growing there, and He gathers them to Himself with joy. He sees the changes on us, and He knows that that we will grow to perfection. His very large, very loving heart that is more loving than any other heart rejoices more than anyone else would rejoice in these things. He takes delight in His people. He cherishes His people. And you come to present yourself before Him. And verse 3, the bride sums up the very essence of her relationship with Him. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. This reflects the way that the Lord describes His marriage covenant with us from Genesis to Revelation. We keep seeing that, don't we? Genesis to Revelation. When he established his redemptive covenant with Abraham, he said to him, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you, and you will be my people. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. In Leviticus 26, 12, he said, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. In Deuteronomy 26, 17, he said, Moses said to them, Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His judgments, that you will obey His voice. It's a marriage covenant, right? Coming, The bride coming to be with her husband, to live with him. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people, His bride, just as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made in praise and name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken to you. The fairest. She is the fairest among women. In Jeremiah 31, 33, He said, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and in their hearts I will write them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In Ezekiel 36, 28, Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. In Hosea 2, 23, when they had gone astray, and now they come back, and now the nations were being called to the gospel. It speaks to the nations. He says, And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. In Hebrews 8.10, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And at the end, in Revelation 21.3, John has a window into eternity, a vision of eternity as it is being brought to fruition. And he says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, look at that, look at that. The tabernacle of God, the tent where God lives, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is the essence of our relationship with God. We belong to Him, and He belongs to us. Not complicated, is it? He has taken us, those sinners, and redeemed us to be His bride, securing our pardon through the death and resurrection, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has taken us, though rebellious, and given us a new heart. As he said, I will write my law in their heart and they'll choose my way so that we would give ourselves to him as his people. The essence of our relationship is that he has poured himself out for us. And now we respond by what? Pouring ourselves out for him. That's what we do in the trysting place. That's what happens in the trysting place when the bride comes to him. It appears that the bride then has now found the one that she loves. 
the one that she was trying to find when she was estranged. Some say that when she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, that she is expressing her faith over against her feelings or her sense of his love. She's lost. She still doesn't have the sense of his love. And so she's just saying, this is what I know to be true. He's made a covenant with me. I belong to him. He belongs to me. That's the facts. Now, that is indeed what sustained her when she was estranged from him. And it's very important for that to sustain you because there are times when you will be far from him for whatever reasons and you will need to know. Like Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I will stand at the last day, but I turn here and I don't see him. I turn there and I don't see him. You see, that, this, is, this is what sustains you. Very important principle, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Because what do we see here if we look at the clues from our text? What do we see? There are three indications that the bride has found him now. And she is again enjoying the intimacy that she was seeking with him. If you look at the context, it's quite clear that she has found him again because in in the verses that follow, chapter 6, verse 4 through 10, what happens? He begins to speak to her. Obviously, she found him. He's talking to her. She's hearing his voice again. She didn't hear his voice when she was away. She remembered his promises. She knew what he said. But hearing his voice in the way of his truth coming to you in a way that really grips you by the Spirit of God. And, and, and as we will see, he not only speaks to her, but he tells her how delighted he is with her in that, in that passage, uh, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 4 through 10. He is with her. And he tells her, he's delighted with her, and he tells her how much she pleases him, how beautiful she is in his eyes. She is his garden, and he's eating the fruits, and he's enjoying the fruits that she has brought forth. He's the gardener. He is enjoying the fruit that she has brought forth for him, the deep love for him. The love that was expressed by her to the daughters of Jerusalem and that was even developed when they asked her, how is your beloved better than another beloved? That she began to, to talk about him and to tell of it. Her, her love was, was, and he says, I delight in you. I delight in that fruit that I see that is in you. In, in, in this whole section we're going to look at next time from 4 to 10, he's expressing He's thrilled with the beauty of her love because it is beautiful. It's something that is his gift that he has given her. Second way that we see that she has been restored to him. Look at how she repeats the line from verse 2 that she had said before, that he feeds among the lilies. We'll take out the word his flock. He feeds among the lilies. Now, why does she repeat it here? Surely she does that because now she is giving herself to him again. In other words, she's conscious, conscious that after saying, I am his and he is mine, he feeds. You see, it's related to, I am his, he is mine. He's feeding upon, I'm his garden. He's feeding upon me. I am my beloved. I'm here for him. I am giving myself to him. What I didn't do before, I'm doing now. And we see something else that indicates that. The third thing we notice is that she speaks of her belonging to him first. And then adds that my, she adds, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved. I belong to him and he belongs to me. And uh, when she says my beloved is mine because he's, you know, freely giving himself to her, feeding her with with the delight of his grace and love. But you see that she's reversed the order from back in 2.16 when he had gone for no apparent reason away from her and came back again. She said then in 2.16, the opposite order. She said, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. She had that there too. But it's reversed. This time she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Why does she change the order? She reverses it because this time she was the one that had initially resisted him. And she wants to emphasize that she is now giving herself to him. I belong to him. I realize I am here for him. And I freely give myself to him. That's what's predominant in her mind because that's what's been restored. 
I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She is not going to resist him now. He does not think about resisting him now. My friends, see that you do not resist him either. I believe that as a congregation that we need to improve our worship. We need to see this as the place, okay? The the gathering of God's people as the place where we joyfully give ourselves as an offering to him. We need to pour out ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, committing our way to him with devotion and dedication. We need to praise him here. We need to see him and we need to adore him as we sing his word and as we hear his word preached and as we hear his promises and as we come to the table and as we learn of him and all the things that he has done for us, we need to be adoring him. This is the trysting place at church. Do you come with that? Or do you come just to receive information like an encyclopedia or something? You're coming to a person to adore and delight in him. We need to work on our worship. This needs to be what happens. This needs to be important to us. We don't just just here kind of hanging out all the time, time to sing, okay, and we sing. We're not even having any communion. So you can be a daughter of Jerusalem, have no communion ever, never know what it is to actually be communing with him, even though you're doing all, going through all the motions. You listen to the sermon, you understand it, you say, oh, that's interesting, that's curious, that's whatever. You, maybe you remember some of it. But we're talking about the trysting place where we have communion with him. We need to assert with the whole church I am my beloved's. I am all for him. And he is mine. He has done all that he has done for me. And he continues to be a blessing to me. He feeds among the lilies. This is the trysting place where we make love to him and where he makes love to us. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, Lord, our hearts yearn to have communion with you. Father, we have seen the bride, the church, through the ages, Lord, we see her, we see the martyrs, we see the apostles, we see dedicated people like the widow Dorcas or, or many that have lived all through the ages who are who delight in you as their husband and who come to you. And we see the devotion. We see the love that they have. And we see that that love is warranted, that you are worthy of even more love than they have ever given you. And we pray, O Lord, that as we see the church's devotion, that we would desire as members of the church to have a a participation in that, that we would want to find you in the place where you can be found. And we praise you that we have learned from this passage that you're found in the garden, in the garden sanctuary, the garden that is your bride who brings forth fruit for you. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to worship you in the assembly of the church to present ourselves to you and to behold you and to receive from you what you have done and the grace and blessing that you give to us as your people. Oh, Lord, we, we yearn for these things. Please, Lord, bless us with the riches of your grace. Give us true delight in you, O oh Lord. Give us hope. Give us encouragement. Give us strength. Help us not to be dissuaded by stupid things that would pull us away from from seeking you, O Lord. Here is where we belong. We belong with our Lord. We belong with our husband. And we pray that we would not wander off other other things and become lax in our relationship with you. Even the most intimate point, Lord, that we would be very much devoted to you and, and freely ready to give ourselves to you. Please forgive us, Lord, for we have come short in this matter. We want to change, Lord, like the daughters of Jerusalem, like the bride who had been sluggish. Father, we want to 
to awaken. We want to come. We want to pursue. We want to seek you. Please, Lord, work in us. Work in all of us and help us. Help it to be contagious, Lord. Help us to spread these things to to our children and to to other people around us, Lord. Some of the people in a church that are, are dragging along. Oh, Father, please, we've got so much that needs to change. Will you help us, Lord? Will you help us, please, to be what you have called us to be? We know that you desire these things of us. So we pray that by your gracious work and your powerful hand, that you would touch us, Lord, and that you would stir us up, that we may come to you and give ourselves wholeheartedly to you and say, I am his and he is mine. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessing from the Lord our God. Blessing that he would, he would make us beautiful for his glory. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.